Where does it go? Where does it go? All of that cast off junk, where does it go? Welcome to Where Does It Go, a podcast about the curious endings of people and things. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. And today, Sarah, I'm going to tell you about a mystery about mysteries, sort of. Yay! It's a Christie mystery. Where did Agatha Christie go? I'm so excited about this. This is a cool story. It is. It's very interesting. It's it's very twisty. So Agatha Christie is one of the best-selling authors of all time. She's written piles and piles of enjoyable books, plays, short stories, etc., And in 1926, she disappeared for 11 days. So her husband, Archie Christie, informed her in August of 1926 that he wanted a divorce. And he was kind of a schmuck about it. Uh, He had been seeing someone else and Agatha was really sad about it. And her mother was dying at the time. So it was just crummy timing on his part. And so on December 3rd, 1926, they fought during the day because Archie was going to go visit some friends with his mistress instead of with Agatha. She wasn't invited, like explicitly wasn't invited. Oh, my God. Yeah. And so that night at about 9.45 p.m., she left the house in her car. And then her car and expired driver's license and clothes were found near a chalk quarry with no sign of her. And there were concerns raised pretty quickly from ranging from suicide, murder, kidnapping, just lost her mind, or intentionally setting up a stunt. The car itself was left near a pond called Silent Pool, where she had actually written a character drowning in one of her stories. In 1926, she had published at least she had published six novels and several short stories. And the car was also found with the hood up and lights on. And then she had written several weird letters before her disappearance. And some of them come into play later and some of them don't, sort of. She wrote one to her brother-in-law about vacationing in Yorkshire. But then he lost the letter before reading it. And that letter had a London postmark. Uh, She was in Newlands Corner, which is south of London, southwest-ish. She wrote a letter to a local police constable that she was afraid for her life. She wrote a very angry letter to her husband that he burned. And she wrote a letter to her secretary to cancel her reservations in Yorkshire. So she wrote to her brother-in-law about vacationing in Yorkshire, told her secretary to cancel her plans in Yorkshire. And when she left that night, uh, the night of December 3rd, she left her house. Uh, Her secretary actually called where the husband was staying, which was 25 miles away from the Christie's house, in case Agatha was going to confront him in person so that he'd sort of be able to meet her outside so they didn't have a big scene. Because Agatha Christie, and I'm sure Archie Christie as well, were were sort of deeply attached to social norms and, and social structure in England. You can you can read in her books a lot of appreciation of social structure as it was post World War One, and then sort of progressively more and more undertones of mourning the social structure that was lost over time into her books that were written into the 1970s. She had a really long career. And that's just something I've personally noticed. I don't know if it was intentional yeah. on her part or not. So 
Agatha's missing. There's lots of weird letters. What happens next? There's a ton of press coverage. There's daily newspaper articles, including pictures, both of her and then pictures doctor to show potential disguises she might use. Uh, Silent Pool, the pond where her car was found, was dredged to make sure her body wasn't in it. And over 15,000 volunteers scoured the countryside, including fellow author Dorothy Sayers. Planes were flown over the English countryside for the first time in England to search for a person. And really? Yeah. This Agatha Christie in 1926 was the first time that they had used planes to look for a missing person. Wow. And then Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, bless his believer heart, brought Christie's glove to a medium to see if the medium could find Agatha Christie. Uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, he wanted to believe in everything supernatural he could. He wanted to believe so badly. It was very earnest and sweet, and he got hoodwinked so many times. He was the fox molder of his day. He absolutely was, and Harry Houdini (laughs) was absolutely the scully. That would yes. be a fun, <laughs> a really fun story to write about yes. <laughs> a believer and skeptic of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle and Harry Houdini. Oh man, that'd be a good time. So Agatha Christie was not dead, obviously. She wrote books into the 70s. She was, she, and it was not this V.C. Andrews type thing where she, they were ghostwritten for a long time after her death. She wrote her books. Uh, She was found 11 days later, December 14th, at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel in Yorkshire, registered as a Miss Tressa Neal. Now, Neal, and this is very amusing and catty, was the same surname as the woman her husband was seeing. Nancy Neal was the woman her husband was having an affair with, and so she went by Miss Tressa Neal. Now, Yorkshire is 229 miles away from her house and her car was found pretty close to her house so that adds a wrinkle of mystery here now while she was at this hotel guests had noticed that she looked like the pictures being printed in the newspaper and they talked to her about it and she laughed off the similarity saying that it was silly good for her (laughs) yeah and while she was at the spot she put a notice in the paper that friends and relatives of Teresa neal or tressa neal i'm sorry Late of South Africa, please communicate. Right box R702, the Times, EC4. So she wanted them to write to a particular box. But I, who, did she tell people uh, what her pseudonym was going to be? I, there's no she evidence that she necessarily did. Anyway, a journalist, Peter Ritchie Calder, actually tracked her down at the Swan Hydropathic Hotel, and Archie Christie was brought to identify her. Now, when Archie Christie came in, she called him her brother, and she responded to her actual name when the journalist spoke to her, Peter Ritchie Calder, but she also claimed she had amnesia. She couldn't remember how she got there. After she was found by her husband and the journalist, she was released to her sister's care, and she remained silent on the whole subject. She literally ignored the 11 days she was missing in her autobiography. Now, there was a lot of press coverage, and her husband and sister released statements that doctors had stated it was most likely she had some kind of amnesia, she couldn't remember how she got to this hotel, and was in some kind of fugue state. Now, 
there was a lot of energy expended to find this woman. It was not something that was small potatoes, this search. So there were, there was a lot of interest in it. And there were a lot of people who were pretty furious that she was just in some spa hotel. Uh, which which is kind of crummy. Like, if you're searching for someone, wouldn't you want to find them alive? Wouldn't that be nice? I mean, I would, but I don't know. I would rather she not be dead and go write books for another 44 years. Right. I mean, if I was looking for someone, I would hope that they would be alive. It's fine to be irritated, but people were livid. So here are the theories We'll, we'll start with some facts involved, and then we'll go with the theories of where she was. So facts involved. She had a ton of money with her when she was at the spa. She, and it was not something that was necessarily the case that women carried a lot of money around in 1926. And so, it, because a lot of times they weren't leaving home. You know, and so it was considered kind of odd. You now she explained that she always had a lot of money with her, so... And when she was at Harrogate, which is where the spot was in Yorkshire, she wrote to Harrods, the department store in London, about a ring she had lost a week before she disappeared, and then asked Harrods to send it to her at Harrogate under her assumed name. And Harrods has no record of this letter, so I'm not sure how this story got sent around, so who knows if this is actually true. But it does point to her knowing who she actually is because Agatha Christie is the one that lost the ring, not Tressa Neal. And she knew she wanted to get a hold of it, so she wanted it at the spa. But this could also have been made up. People made up stuff in newspapers constantly in 1926. And they still do. Yeah. In a book about her disappearance that was written fairly recently, there was an interview of family members of a different brother-in-law who claimed that it was all a huge stunt and it was pretty well known in the family. And then in terms of how did she get from Newlands Corner to London to post a letter to her brother-in-law to Yorkshire, she almost certainly took the train from Newlands Corner to London to Yorkshire. It's not 100% about how she got from Silent Pool, where her car was broken down or something, or made to look to be broken down, to a train station. But I looked at a map, and again, this is 2020, so I have no idea if this was the case when, you know, when she disappeared. But there are a lot of train stations in the area, and there's one that goes straight to London that has a line that goes straight to London that's within a mile or two of where her car broke down, which is walkable. Oh, yeah, totally. So here are the theories about where she went. So... Theories include she was really pissed at her husband and wanted to scare him, but didn't anticipate the furor around her disappearance. She didn't anticipate that 15,000 people would go look for her and they would use airplanes. There's a theory that she had an actual nervous breakdown. And while she knew what she was doing, she didn't have complete emotional control over herself. There's a theory that she wanted to frame her husband for murder. She wanted to do a whole gone girl before there was a gone girl. <laughs> I think this is unlikely personally. And then there's, she was deeply depressed from her mother's death, which was a probable contribution to this entire thing, regardless of her reasoning behind it. Apparently her husband had fled the country while her mother was sick, saying he found illness annoying. 
And then he did not come back after her mother died until she had finished cleaning out her mother's house. Wow, what a dick. It was not the most husbandly behavior I've ever heard of, for sure. (laughs) Uh, So, my best guess, and the thing that makes the most sense to me, particularly with all the information here, is that she probably had something of an emotional break or a nervous breakdown. And I don't think she was considering harming herself per se, but I do think she drove her car somewhere, either somewhere quiet or she was trying to get to Archie. And I think her car broke down and she was not equipped to be a mechanic to her own vehicle. Uh, And so she walked to a train station, said the hell with it. I got money. I'm going to go have a weekend. And then she took the train to London, wrote her brother-in-law a letter saying, Hey, I'm going to be in Yorkshire. And then went to Yorkshire and was like, well, if he wants to find me, he can look for his mistress because that's who he wants to find. <laughs> that's my best guess. But this is basically, it's never fully been solved because the only person who truly knows what happens is Agatha Christie. And she claims amnesia, claimed amnesia. She's she's since passed away. But it's it's an interesting little pre-Christmas event in 1926 and and one part of what amazes me about this is that it didn't seem to negatively impact her career a lot and it might have even helped it which is it's interesting because this is the type of thing that could make someone really seem like a complete charlatan especially if people have decided that they're a liar which a lot of people did decide that she was a liar that she just did this on purpose to make people fuss over her and so I I just think it's an interesting wrinkle in a very successful author's life story. Totally. And I had always heard the story like she was trolling everyone because she was totally pissed at her husband and he was a total dick and she did it just to get back at him. And it went a little bit farther than she thought it would. And I think that's what it turned into. I think it started with her really having a breakdown because she had been like crying in her car prior to this, like just found sobbing in her car or forgetting her own name. Like she genuinely was having emotional difficulties at this time. And I don't think she necessarily wanted to kill herself because I think, I think if she had genuinely wanted to do it, she would have either done it at home or actually gone more steps than just leaving her car a mess near a quarry right especially if she didn't want her car to be found very quickly because you're not going to leave it on main street and go oh there's agatha christie's car because it's not like everybody had a car in 1926 right so i think it started i like with like just fueled by misery and rage and then turned into a well if he wants to find me he can find mrs neal because that's who he wants to find yeah. So it turned into a I like a the troll. thought of I like the thought of her like totally having this everything is horrible, I can't handle it. Driving her car, pissed off at the world, sits in her car and is like, screw it. I have so much money. I'm just gonna go and and have fun and be someone else for a little bit. <laughs> I like that. I, I, I kind of feel like that's where it went. I don't know. Yeah, I think you're right. I agree with you. So, <laughs> so that's where she went. 
That's awesome. It's an awesome story, and I've always been curious about it. I never knew all the detail to it. Yeah, it's... Well, and I I tried not to include too many unsourced pieces of information, but some of these just don't have a source at all, particularly because most of this is hearsay. Yeah, totally. So... I'm going to talk about Kentucky Daisy or Nanita Daisy. I don't know if you've ever heard of her. Nope. She's the first female landowner in Oklahoma you've probably never heard of. (laughs) Right on. Okay. So who she was. Uh, Kentucky Daisy was born Nanita Daisy, and she was a journalist in the late 1800s. She was born in Pennsylvania in about 1855. After her pa- and her parents died, so she grew up in a convent in Missouri. So we can we can blame Catholicism for this wild woman. <laughs> she moved. <laughs> Let's print that on a T-shirt. Yeah. <laughs> I oh I like that. I'm writing That's it really down good. right now. I I can totally wear that shirt. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> exactly. So. Uh, when she was older, she moved to Kentucky to work as a teacher and then took as a, a job as a journalist and a correspondent. But at the time, uh, there was a ton of gender discrimination against women writers in newspapers and magazines. And so she mostly got fluff pieces about what women were wearing and what babies ate and stuff like that, like she didn't want to write about. So at the time... There was uh, West, it was part of Westward Expansion, expansion time. So seeing a chance to write about something important instead of what petticoats women were wearing, uh, she became a correspondent for the Dallas Morning News and the Fort Worth Gazette. And she moved to Oklahoma during the Oklahoma land rush in 1889 when the U.S. government opened up um, a bunch of land for white settlers to settle into the West because the East was getting pretty crowded. So this starts in a very sad way. The reason why this land was opening up was because the U.S. government was taking back land that they had previously promised Native Americans that they had forcibly removed from the Southeast. So in uh, 1830, Andrew Jackson, the bigot in chief at the time. Oh, (laughs) yeah. He... He signed into law the Indian Removal Act in 1830, and he started the forcible removal of thousands of Native American Indians um, into territory west of the Mississippi. And these peoples included the Choctaw, the Chickasaw, the Muscogee Creek, the Seminole, though the Seminole in southeast Florida started a war for a few years, um just to stay in Southeast Florida, and they were mostly successful. And the Cherokee Nation, which is a huge nation of Native Americans that makes up a lot of different people. Um, And the Cherokee had been disputing Georgia at the time for land in Georgia, but they eventually were forcibly removed. And in 1835, uh, I hope all of you, everyone has learned about the Trail of Tears where uh, these Native American Indians were forced to move west. But again, westward expansion happened and the lands that were previously promised to the Native American peoples were opened up for white settlers. 
So, April 22nd, 1889 at noon, people gathered on horse in wagons and on foot to state claims to land that had been opened up when our president at the time, Benjamin Harrison, signed the Indian Appropriations Bill in 1889. It opened up 2 million acres of unassigned land in the, in the center of what was Indian territory, but was currently unassigned to any tribal nation at the time. So in the land run of 1889, Acres of land were free for those who could stake a claim as long as you were 21 and a U.S. citizen. So that was generally white people. All you had to pay was a $14 filing fee. So you had your two stakes with your name on them. You paid your filing fee and you ran like hell to stake your claim starting at noon on April 22nd. So Nanita, our friend, Nanita Daisy or Kentucky Daisy, was on a train full of settlers headed for land rush territory. The, the train operators at the time were like, no, we can't slow down the train or stop the train. But she made a deal with the engineer of the train she was on and told him what she planned to do. So she was armed with two claim stakes with her name on them, her revolver in her pocket, and she was wearing her cloak. She gave the train engineer the signal, and he slowed down the train a bit, and she jumped right off. She jumped off. She ran to her claim that she had picked. She staked it. She threw her cloak on the ground, kneeled down, fired her revolver, and said, I salute the Kentucky Daisy claim. This woman jumped off of a train, with her revolver and kneeled on the ground and staked her claim. Oh my God. I salute the Kentucky Daisy claim is another good shirt. <laughs> so she was, she was pretty well known after this. She was already a character. People already loved her for uh, just being a character and being a, a wild woman and saying whatever she wanted. So in 1891, she got 11 other women together for another land run that was happening when they opened up the Cheyenne-Arapaho territory, no surprise. Um, she hid the women in a hideout before they were supposed to be in the territory to stake their claims. So you weren't supposed to be in the territory before the land run started. So she was hiding them so that they would have a better advantage of getting claims. But apparently Daisy went off for supplies and was caught, but I guess distracted the authorities and the women were able to stake claims for themselves. That's the story. Ooh. So she helped 11 other women um, establish their own claims is what the story was. There were other stories about her leading charges of women to stake claims, but a lot of them were fictitious, and it seems like the 11 other women were the one that was true, but there was, like, a bunch of other claims, and those kind of proved to be fictitious. So on the land that she staked, she would she actually didn't live there very much. She kind of was an adventurer, and she occasionally taught school in the um, close town of Guthrie, Oklahoma. But she did build herself a little cabin and was there occasionally when she wasn't adventuring and doing Kentucky Daisy things. <laughs> so where did she go? Well, she had a lot of adventures, and she was a bit of a cougar. She married a man much younger than her. He was in the Army and was sent to the Philippines, so they separated. Hmm. 
when he came back to Chicago, she found out he was in Chicago. She went to Chicago to be with him, but he broke her heart and they divorced. Oh. Yeah, she she died in Chicago. But she is well known in um, Edmond, Oklahoma, which is where her claim was staked. She was one of the first settlers of Edmond, Oklahoma. There's a large bronze statue of Kentucky Daisy um, that was made by the artist Mary Lou Gresham, and it stands in the Farmer's Market Pavilion in Edmond. And she is very celebrated, very loved as a color, colorful woman character of Westward Expansion. Right on. So go visit it. Yeah. We'll add that to our road trip. <laughs> Edmond, Oklahoma. I did not look where it was in, as far as like Oklahoma City because I went to Oklahoma City for a class uh, years ago. But yeah, it's Oklahoma City is actually quite. I like the city. It was fun. They had a huge Chihuly get glass exhibition, so I walked through that while I was there. Um, but I don't know how far it is from Oklahoma City. I'm taking a little look. Yeah. It's very wee. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, it's like a suburb of Oklahoma City. Oh, sweet. So it's close. Yeah. Very cool. Now that's really interesting that she would have been so close to Oklahoma City because Oklahoma City was probably kind of a place, presumably before the land rush. Not not. really. Not really, no. Um, there was like little whistle stops because the the railroad went through there. Mm-hmm. But I mean, there was a little bit in Edmund. There was like a building and a guy that lived there. But pretty much during the land run, I think overnight it said that the population tripled. Whoa. <laughs> Which wasn't hard since there was like a guy and his dog. <laughs> <laughs> A family of four moves in and the place explodes. Exactly. Although the the environmental health specialist in me is like, oh my God, the sewage. Oh no, the sewage. Yeah. What did they do with the sewage? Just imagine how brave you had to be though, because you had no idea what was going to happen. All you knew is you wanted a claim and you're from the East, which is, getting really crowded at the time. And so you go on a train and you have no idea what's going to happen and you jump out of it. And what do you do after that? You just live off the land with your cloak until, (laughs) until you can like jump back on the train. I guess so. Yeah. it, It was just the, the pioneer spirit is just so fascinating to me just how people were just they had no idea what was going to happen and as Oregon Trail has taught us many of them died of dysentery um the sewage but they did it (laughs) exactly the sewage but the sewage (laughs) you need we need a shirt that says but the sewage like instead of but her emails but the sewage (laughs) I'm writing that one down, too. Because, yeah, I mean, that is really audacious. That is a lack of giving a damn that I cannot relate, my anxious self cannot relate to. 
<laughs> we can blame the Catholic Church for that. <laughs> like I said. <laughs> Man, it- so there's a lot of legends about Kentucky Daisy that kind of float around. One said that she was on the cow catcher part of the train, which was like a um, hook kind of thing that come- came down from the front of the engine. Um, and that she was right. Well, no, the cow catcher was the like the bumper. But everyone's like, there's no way she was riding on the bumper of the train because the engine would have been so hot. They were steam engines at the time. Well, and then if there's anything on the track, you're going to get hit by it. If there's a branch, (laughs) if there's a cow, if there's an antelope, if there's a person, if there's a small rock that's coming, you know, it gets kicked up in your face. But the uh, I salute the Kentucky Daisy claim, that is all in her own words. That is that is what she said she did. And there were other people on the train watching this happen, apparently. So this is her personal story. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Are there it. pictures of her? Uh, there are no pictures of her that I know of. Well, maybe there are a couple, but the, um, artist Mary Lou Gresham based it off of something. So she was a correspondent for the newspaper. So you would think there probably are pictures of her somewhere. I didn't see any, but she was described in various places as being very petite. So she was a very small woman. So, I mean, that even confounds, like, her jumping off the train with a revolver. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She says she jumped off the train, landed on her feet, of course. Well, yeah. And ran over to her claim. Well, and we also got to remember, she's doing this in a big dress. She is not Mm -hmm. wearing trousers. She is not. She's probably wearing a corset of some flavor. Probably not tight-laced, but still. Like she is doing this in women's clothing of the time, which the fact that she can get dragged under the train is amazing. Exactly. What a woman. Exactly. <laughs> Agreed. She was her her story is pretty cool. I enjoy it, and I also like that she helped other women try to stake claims in the West as well. Well, exactly because that wasn't. I mean, it was very hard to do, and it was not uncommon for women who were traveling alone west to die because mm-hmm. no one was going to help take care of them mm-hmm. so if they didn't have a group to assist especially if they had children if they didn't have a group to work together they were gonna have a real hard time that's amazing so uh this led me down a rabbit hole when i was looking for information about her there's not much there's a little bit and Of course, a lot of it is from Oklahoma history pages. Mm -hmm. But if you really want to be inspired by women, uh, there's OklahomaHistory.org has land runs and women. And there's quite a few women that they list. Like there's a lot of African-American people that came to Oklahoma during westward expansion, hoping to escape the racism and hoping to build themselves like cities for African-American people to escape the, the racism of the South, because this was not that long after the civil war ended. It was maybe 
20 years after the Civil War ended. The Civil War ended in uh, 1865. So, I mean, the people were struggling and they wanted a place of their own. So there's some pretty great information about African-American people that came for westward expansion. There's quite a few interesting stories of women where they're their husbands and sons just died on the way. So they were by themselves Mm -hmm. and they settled as well. And if you just imagine like they, they built themselves houses. Most of the time they were sod houses. A lot of time when you, when they first moved there. So you were living basically in a house made out of grass. (laughs) It it was, it's just amazing that the survival instinct uh, and the bravery of these people is pretty amazing and unfortunately the native american indians really suffered because of it but it it really speaks to the survival instinct of people Mm -hmm. and the desire for adventure and i think like i think we don't necessarily have in this day and age, a firm understanding of how much land you needed in order to live off the land. Oh, yes. And so that's why the East was so crowded. Mm-hmm. Is beca- exactly. Is because you needed more than just a quarter acre front yard, backyard house. Unless you lived in a city and had a city job. Exactly. So... This was before industrialization. Mm -hmm. Like you, there was no, you know, you couldn't just go to the grocery store. I mean, you could go to the market and buy stuff, but it wasn't like driving up to the Target at nine o'clock at night. I mean, that's not, that's not not what happened. If you didn't put food by and you were living out on these places, you were going to be hungry for the winter. You were going to die in the winter. Yes. Yes. Have you ever read The Long Winter, the no. Laura Ingalls Wilder book? Woo. No, I haven't. It's my favorite Laura Little House in the Prairie storyline book mm-hmm. because it is probably the most horrifying. <laughs> and it's about a really harsh winter and what people had to do to live and how just horrible it was. And it's, you know, yeah. things turned out okay, but it was rough. <laughs> it's a good book. Well worth reading. So food scarcity and starvation are like two things that I have a hard time dealing with. So a story like that sounds really horrifying to me. I'm just like, wow, that sounds so awful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's interesting in that it, it really boils down for a reader what you actually need to survive and what and what we do and the things we have that are fairly frivolous oh absolutely so it can be a nice sort of reframing perspective but it's also really horrifying (laughs) (laughs) all right thanks Sarah that's when where Kentucky Daisy went which is yeah kind of cool story with a bummer ending (laughs) well yeah everyone dies unfortunately she died with a broken heart but she was a badass before that yeah and then that's where agatha christie went agatha christie got remarried to a guy she really liked just so you know 
Oh, good. Agatha Christie was a badass, too. You can find us at wheredoesitpodcast.com. And if you felt like leaving a review and a rating on iTunes, that'd be cool. Certainly don't have to. If you have any suggestions or questions. It helps. It does help. Uh, If you have any suggestions or questions, feel free to get in touch at wheredoesitpodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter and Instagram and Pinterest. And hope you have a great day.